Hello, my name is Aaron Ettenberg. I am the Acting Provost of the College of Letters and Science, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome you all here on behalf of the university uh, for what I know is going to be a truly memorable evening. Uh, before we begin, there's a, a, a couple of things I, I want to mention. One of them is the one I just did. Another is a, a favor that I'd like to ask of some of you. To, and you'll know who you are. If you could take a moment, please, to uh, turn off the audible signals on your pagers and your cell phones so that we can avoid unintended interruptions during the uh, lecture. It'll add dignity to the evening and avoid uh, some unnecessary embarrassment on your part. So please, if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. I've also been asked to request that you please refrain from taking photographs during today's program. Tonight marks the fourth event in a three-year series of lectures, debates, and dialogues intended to bring to UCSB and Santa Barbara some of the world's greatest thinkers, some of the world's greatest minds. And the idea is to bring people to the community to talk to us, explore with us the interesting, controversial issues of our day and of our society. The Arthur and Roop Distinguished Dialogue Series was established thanks to the vision of Arthur Roop and the Arthur and Roop Foundation, and we most certainly owe them a great deal. They have made this possible. Thank you, Arthur. As I look out here, I can't help but uh, recollect that when we originally started talking about this, we were going to... Uh, have this lecture held on campus in Campbell Hall, which seats 860 uh, people. And then someone on the committee said, uh, even of Menard, who suggested that we might want to uh, consider a broader audience. Uh, and so uh, we decided to move over here to the biggest room we could find in Santa Barbara, here at the Arlington Theater. And lo and behold, uh, within 10 days, all 2,000 tickets have been distributed. So we do have a full house. Special thanks to Bruce Corwin and the Metropolitan Theaters for helping coordinate with us to make this happen, as it was kind of a, a last-minute kind of change for us. Tonight's program is presented to you by a number of different people, including UCSB's College of Letters and Science, our Arts and Lecture Program, our Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. It's also co-sponsored by the Herman P. and Sophia Tobman Foundation Endowed Symposia in Jewish Studies at UCSB and the Anti-Defamation League. It's also put on in partnership with the UCSB Bookstore and the Santa Barbara Jewish Fe uh, Federation. Shelley, I got that right. I almost stumbled. Finally, I want to uh, just take a moment to thank uh, three particular people. And I, want to, I, I select these people because we've been doing this series. Again, this is the fourth event. And these people never got thanked before. We thank a lot of people and administrators and so on. And that's great. We love to thank administrators. Uh, but there are people who are behind the scenes who are doing an enormous amount of work to make this happen. And I thought it might be a wise idea, an appropriate idea, quite frankly, uh, to thank these individuals. And there are three in particular that I have in mind. One of them is... Dr. Leonard Wallach, who's the Associate Director of our Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. <laughs> Leonard does it all. You know, we sit around in a room when we're planning this and we throw out ideas and, you know, it gets to the point where someone says, geez, it would be great if we get Ellie Wiesel to come to Santa Barbara. And we all kind of go like this and we say, take it away, Leonard. And that's exactly what happens. And then uh, Leonard makes it happen. And, and here we are for an incredible evening. So a uh, special thank you to you, Leonard, not just for this, but for other events and the future ones that are yet to be planned. 
In addition, I want to thank Roman Baratiak of UCSB's Arts and Lectures and Gretchen Falvo of our Public Events Office. They deserve applause. You rarely hear their voices in these, or their names called in these particular situations, but they are the ones who dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and literally, we would not be able to pull these things off in such high quality, and hopefully you will agree this is a high quality event uh, without their efforts, so thank you. And now we are ready to begin. It's my pleasure to introduce the moderator for tonight's program, my friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Hecht, who's professor of religious studies and co-author of To Rule Jerusalem. Richard? Friends and colleagues, it's a great honor for me to stand before you and to introduce Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel begins his novel, The Gates of the Forest, by recasting a Hasidic parable. As he tells it, when danger and misfortune threatened the Jews, the Baal Shem Tov would go to a certain place in the forest to meditate. He would light a fire, say a special prayer, and a miracle would be accomplished and the, and the misfortune averted. But each generation gradually lost a portion of the Baal Shem Tov's custom. But still the miracle would happen until, as Elie Wiesel writes, it fell to Rabbi Yisrael of Raisin to overcome the misfortune. Sitting in his armchair, his head in his hands, he spoke to God. I am unable to light the fire. I do not know the prayer. I cannot even find the place in the forest. All I can do is to tell the story, and this must be sufficient. And it was sufficient. God made man because he loves stories. I read this novel in 1966, and the story, his telling, had a profound impact upon me. I believe the impact was the same as it has impacted each and every one of us this evening who has read even a single paragraph of Elie Wiesel's work. Like many of you, I was born in the generation of the Shoah, but my fate, our fate, has been profoundly different than our same generation of European Jewish children. When Elie Wiesel received the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1986, he came directly to the profound shock of the Shoah in his address to the Swedish Academy. He wrote and said, and yet, real despair only seized us later, afterwards, as we emerged from the nightmare and began to search for meaning. All those doctors of law, or medicine, or theology, all those lovers of art and poetry, of Bach and Goethe, who coldly, deliberately ordered the massacres and participated in them. What did their metamorphosis signify? 
Could anything explain their loss of ethical, cultural, and religious memory? How could we ever understand the passivity of the onlookers and, yes, the silence of the allies? And then the question of questions Elie Wiesel posed. Where was God in all this? My generation, your generation, sunk into despair of pain and suffering until Elie Wiesel spoke and wrote and spoke and wrote and wrote again. And now, well over 40 books. And there's this beautiful souvenir uh, summation of his life and his contributions to letters and civil rights and human rights and politics that we can keep and which describes all of his work and his major publications. But in over 40 books, Elie Wiesel has continually sought to articulate the enormous powers of memory. He has taught us that memory potentially may heal us and preserve us from repeating the Shoah. Certainly, the world has threatened and carried out other genocides since the death camps were liberated. We were all born in the most barbaric century of human history. Auschwitz was in part about erasing memory, erasing the past and the future, erasing hope. And Elie Wiesel has given immeasurable courage to us, to other survivors, courage to take up memory, to tell other stories, with hope that we might avert a repetition of the past. Ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed a great honor to introduce to you Elie Wiesel, who is truly a citizen of the world. Please join me now in welcoming him to the University of California and to our community here in Santa Barbara. Dr. Wallach, and my dear Dr. Hecht. I was given a subject which has actually excited my fantasy. I'm supposed to speak not about so much my work, but it's about myself. But what a but I hope you know this is the inaugural lecture of a series that you have established destined to Nobel laureates alone. That means every year you will invite a Nobel laureate to speak about himself or herself, about the life that is behind the title. First, an anecdote. On my long way, to Santa Barbara, which lasted, let's say, a few months, the following thing happened. I was walking in New York with a friend of mine. 
and all of a sudden I realized that a young couple that came across us, she was very beautiful, and she looked at me, and I heard her say to her boyfriend, I think it's Eri Wiesel. He must have said something. Probably he must have said it's impossible. <laughs> because she came back, looked at me, went back to her boyfriend, <laughs> and said, it's not him. <laughs> so I imagine the goal which has been formulated here for me is to avoid here at least this kind of episode. <laughs> it is me. <laughs> now what really, what could I say about, about my life? If anyone had told me in my childhood that one day I will either see the coming of the Messiah or receive the Nobel Prize. What do you think I would have said? <laughs> Surely coming of the Messiah, naturally. But with all due respect to Alfred Nobel, I didn't even know that he existed. Nor did he, that I existed. I grew up, as some of you may know, in a small city, somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains, a city, a small village, big, big village, but a small city that somehow all the uh, empires of the world wanted, I don't know why. Uh, when my father was born, it was part of Austro-Hungary. When I was born, it was Romania. When I left it, it was Hungary. Now it's Romania again. <laughs> the problems that we faced, I remember very vividly, was at one point when the Hungarians came in, we had to learn the new anthem overnight in Hungarian. So until then, we sank the anthem in Romanian, long live the king or something, and then went right away to Hungary. So, I nevertheless, my anchor was school, Jewish school, Jewish studies. I come from a very religious background, very religious family. And uh, my, my father, my grandfather, my mother, all belong to Hasidic, Hasidic groups. And my joy, all my interests really, were in studies. Nevertheless, I had to go to secular school too. So what we did, we bribed the principal. So I could go to school only a month before the exams. And in that month, I learned everything by heart, passed the exam, forgot quickly everything. <laughs> What do I need to know about geography? What I wanted to know was what happened in the temple 2,000 years ago. That was my interest. The, the conversations, the dialogues, the beautiful stories of the Talmud, that was my passion, not uh, mathematics or physics. Who cares? I didn't anyway. <laughs> my grandfather was a fervent Hasid, and what does it mean? I have to explain. Those of you who studied history know that in the 18th century there was a Hasidic movement. You just heard from Dr. Hech the story of the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. But the real definition of a Hasid doesn't exist. Uh, it's 
supposed to be part of the mystical movement, of the Lurianic mystical movement. What is a mystic? And here is another anecdote. the greatest scholar of mysticism was a man, Gershom Scholem. He made mysticism into a discipline. And he's, he's, of course, his reputation was all over the world. And one day he came to New York to give a lecture at the Jewish Theological Seminary. The rector was one of the great, great Talmudic scholars of centuries, Shaul Lieberman. And he was my teacher and my friend. Lieberman was an opponent of the Hasidic movement, opponent to mysticism, and yet a friend of Scholem. So when Scholem came to give the lecture, presided over by Lieberman, the entire elite from New York came, not only to hear the story, but to see what would Lieberman say. And this is how he introduced his friend. So, ladies and gentlemen, all of you should know, know probably who Dr. Gershom Scholem is. If you don't know, you should. What? He teaches mysticism at the Hebrew University. What is mysticism? Wait at a moment. Nonsense. (laughs) And when the shock subsided, he went on saying, nonsense is nonsense, but the history of nonsense is scholarship. (laughs) So, Thanks to my grandfather, I came close to, he, to the Vishnitzer Hasidim, and I remain, by the way, a Hasid to this day. Of course, I don't look it. If you see now Hasidim, there are, the way they dress, that's how I dress then. But now I don't look it, but it doesn't matter. And the story, again, another story, is in Jerusalem, in the Hebrew University, there was a professor who taught ethics. And one day he turned to one of his students and he said, Moshe, I see you are a poet, and you have no money. Therefore, my advice is, marry a rich girl. (laughs) And the student said, Professor, how can you? You who teach ethics, how can you give me such an unethical advice? And the professor said, Moshe, Next door, Professor Frankel is teaching mathematics. Does he look like a triangle? <laughs> so I'm a Hasid, I don't look like a Hasid. <laughs> Naturally, I studied, at one point I studied, began studying mysticism as well, which is forbidden, but that's the only forbidden thing I think I have done. No, more than that in my life. And of course, like every Jew in those times, in those places, we had a dream, the dream of Jerusalem. I knew the name of Jerusalem before I knew the name of my town. The first lullaby that my mother would sing for me was about Jerusalem. The first prayers about Jerusalem. I remember the custom which to this day exists in many places. One is not supposed to leave a knife on the table in a Jewish home when we say grace. One reason is that we believe every table is an altar and therefore a knife that can be used to kill should not be part of the altar. You know that the temple in Jerusalem was built without ever 
and iron being used to cut stones because one and the other don't go together spirituality and murder don't go together the other reason is that our sages were afraid that when we in our saying grace we come to a certain verse which, which speaks about Jerusalem that the person would be so overcome with nostalgia and pain over the destruction of Jerusalem that involuntarily we would take a knife and kill and, and plunge it in the heart so no knife that is to tell you the place Jerusalem occupied in, in our mind, in our soul, in our memory, in our life and things would have continued if the war had not been present in its brutality as it came to be there had been no war, no holocaust so to speak I would have remained there and probably I would have, my dream was to become a teacher of Talmud maybe if possible a Rosh Hashiva, meaning the head of a Talmudic school in a small village I could have been accepted and write a commentary on sacred texts in fact I did write a commentary on the Bible and when I went back to my little town after the war among the many many books that I had and that which were then gathered in one of the synagogues I found my manuscript it's atrocious <laughs> <laughs> but I kept it as a jewel well here I am I teach and I write but not the same things because what happened, you know what happened. In 1944, the Germans occupied Hungary. They came and very quickly things happened. Between Passover and Shavuot, seven, day, seven weeks, the ghetto was created, transports began, and the entire city, people from 12 to 15,000 Jews, were sent to Auschwitz in seven weeks. Well, that of course has influenced my writing a lot because I don't write much about that period. Of the 40 books that Brecht mentioned, maybe three or four deal with that period. First, I don't want it to become a routine. I still want to tremble before I use the word Auschwitz or, or the destruction or, or, or Holocaust. But nevertheless it's there. Even when I write about the Bible, about Talmud, about whatever, somehow it's there because I am there. Even in my novels, although the novels are not about that event. But I am the one who writes the novel. And so many, many things really remained as question marks. The question marks remained open. In one of my novels I described my return to Siget, which was my town. And strangely enough, I wrote it before I returned. The novel is called Don't Buy It. I'm just giving you the name. <laughs> the novel is called The Town Beyond the Wall. In French, I write in French. In French, the, the title is different. It's called La Ville de la Chance, The City of Luck. But the American publisher was afraid that people would mind, would think that it's about Las Vegas. <laughs> and I had hoped that they would think it's Las Vegas. That it would have sold, you know, many books. 
as it was now. So they changed the title, called it The Town Beyond the Wall. All right, let it be. And there I describe really a return that has not taken place yet. For instance, I describe at one point that the story is about the young boy, young, young boy who's, who wants to go back to his town and goes back illegally and accompanied by a friend that is arrested in, in Romania, arrested, and when they searched him, they found two candles. And they thought maybe he has some microfilms in it. And they asked him, why are the candles? And I don't say why, because I didn't know why. I just put in candles, if I might. <laughs> when I came, when I really come, came back, and I came back for one day and one night, the first thing, I wanted to go to the cemetery. My grandfather, all my family, except those who went to Auschwitz, were there. And I wanted to go to the tomb of my grandfather, whose name I bear. He was a medic who, who, fell in, who fell in while trying to help wounded persons, wounded soldiers in the army of, of, of Austro-Hungary uh, in, in, in 1918, to give him a report. Say, look, here I am. I'll tell you what I did with your name. But when a Jew goes to a cemetery, he buys candles. So I bought candles. And a few other things in that novel, which I did afterwards. And the novel became a kind of blueprint for me, of a script. I followed, I followed the geography, everything. One thing that always bothered me there, the change of our neighbors. When we left the ghetto, uh, what, what did we do the last thing we did actually the last night we became like grave diggers everybody tried to hide the little things that we had in the ground but the day after like vultures so many neighbors came and fell upon the ghetto to take whatever we had and then I remember a face a face of a person who lived not very far from the main synagogue. And I describe it and I'll read to you this page. I describe it because at one point I realized why I wanted to go back to see that man. A man who was indifferent. He saw us in the courtyard already gathered by the enemy to be sent off to death. And there he was indifferent. And I wanted to see him, to confront him. So this is what I say. It was right here at the old synagogue. Yes, I remember now, a Saturday. The police had herded all the city's Jews into the building. The house of prayer and meditation had become a depot where families were separated and friends said farewell last stop before boarding the death train. A memory came to the surface so violently that I felt dizzy. The windows, the curtains, the face, in the house across the way. A spring day, sunny, the day of punishment, day of divorce between good and evil. Here men and women yoked by misery, there the face that watched them. 
Finally, everything was clear. Stark. There then was the reason, the real reason, the reason behind all the other reasons why I wanted to come back. Relieved, I sighed. I can still see him that Saturday. Jews were filling the courtyard. On their backs they carried whatever they had saved of a lifetime of work, knapsacks into which the old had stuffed their past, their children, their future, the rabbis, their faith, the sick, their exhaustion. The wandering Jew was about to set out again, the exiled staff in his hand. The wandering Jew was headed towards the physical liquidation of his difficulties to the final solution. At last, the world was to be relieved of the great problem that had haunted it for 2,000 years. Now, at last, it would be able to breathe. No one in the crowd was crying. No one wailed or even spoke. Ghosts clonging up from the depths of history, fearful, silent ghosts. They awaited the order to move out. Hungarian police, black feathers in their heads, came and went, rifles at the ready, bludgeons poised. My parents and I stood close to the fence. On the other side were life and liberty, or what men call life and liberty. A few passers-by, they averted their faces. The more sensitive bowed their heads. It was then that I saw him. A face in the window across the way. The curtains hid the rest of him. Only his head was visible. It was like a balloon. Bald, flat nose, white, empty eyes. A bland face, banal, bored. No passion ruffled it. I watched it for a long time. It was gazing out, reflecting no pity, no pleasure, no shock. Not even anger or interest. Impassive, cold, impersonal. The face was indifferent to the spectacle. What? Men are going to die? That's not my fault, is it now? I didn't make a decision. The face is neither Jewish nor anti-Jewish. A simple spectator. That's what it is. It is then that I actually began thinking of the danger, the perils of indifference which has occupied my activities and motivated my activities for years and years and years. I began fighting indifference. I wrote about it. I spoke about it. The, the Millennium Lecture I gave in the White House for the President was on the perils of indifference. Because I came to the conclusion then, and I must have said it when I was here in 86, because I said it almost everywhere. It was my mantra that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And I went on. The opposite of education is not ignorance, but indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, but indifference. The opposite of life is not death, but indifference. It is because of that face that I remember, the face in the window. From the train we went, we took the road, the gathering of exiles, the, the antinomian gathering of exiles. And that is what I wrote about in night. And I remember, to this day, I remember it, when we landed there after midnight, we didn't know where we came. When we saw from the train yet the word 
Auschwitz, we had no idea what it meant. And to this day, that moment fills me with anger. Everybody already knew what it meant. It was known in Washington, it was known in the Vatican, it was known in London, it was known in Switzerland and in Stockholm. We, the victims, didn't know, because nobody cared to tell us. Had we known, many Jews from my town could have gone into the mountains hiding. The Russian army, the Red Army, was I think 20 or 30 miles away. It was clear, it's a matter of days or weeks, and there were good Christians in our town that were ready to hide us, to give us shelter. We had a maid who was a member of our family, a Christian, marvelous Christian lady. She was the honor of Christianity. And she sneaked into the ghetto and she pleaded with us, with my father. Come, she said, I have a hut. She didn't know either what it meant, Auschwitz, never heard of it. But she knew that a danger was there. And she pleaded with us, I have a hut in the mountains, she said, come, it's already, it's already May, it's not cold anymore, and I'll take care of you. Had we known, they would have gone. Many of us would have gone. So that indifference to the fate of, 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 of Jews in Eastern Europe, especially the Hungarian Jews, the last large community that was sent to liquidation. To this day, it, it, it troubles me very much. We arrived, and I had a very strange idea all of a sudden. Because I was so taken by, by the mystical vision that we all have of messianism, that the Messiah will come every day, we would pray. We are supposed to say the 12th article of faith of Maimonides. Say it and sing it. I believe if, with all, all my heart, with full faith in the coming of the Messiah. And although he is late in coming, I am waiting for him to come. All of a sudden, when I saw these Jews from everywhere, speaking all the languages, representing all these circles, social, economical, cultural, from, from the Jewish people, all gathering to the flames. I thought, maybe the Messiah has come. Oh yes, it was the anti-Messiah that came. After the war, before that question has been, I've been asked, and every survivor is asked, at one point or another, how did you survive? What what made you want to survive? In my case, I didn't do anything for it. I didn't even want to survive. I was always sick when I was a child. Uh, my parents made me discover great big cities, Kolozhvar, uh, Satma, simply because we went to, to the doctors. I was always sick, so I should survive. I was the wrong person for it. But as long as my father was alive, I wanted to live. I knew that if I die, he would die. When he died, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't life anymore. Uh, that's why those of you who read Night, between January and April, the day of liberation, there are through maybe a few pages, not more, because there was nothing. I, I did not live.
that the April 11th came, the American army arrived. I went through the lists, seeing who could have survived. My little sister, surely not. My mother, I'm sure not. My father died. All the sisters, I looked into the into the uh, list that was distributed. We were given those lists. They weren't there. So I said, why go back? To whom? So I belonged to a group of 400 adolescents who went to France, to an orphanage. The youngest was eight, seven or eight. He is now the chief rabbi of Israel, Lao. The oldest was 18 or 19. I was then 16, 15 and a half, 16. What I did then, immediately I asked the director of the camp, I need a Talmudic tractate, and I gave him the name. It is the one that I had in my bag when I came to Auschwitz. Because I thought I was going to study, even there. I wanted to pick up the place where I have interrupted that, that book, that study. One day I came to the office to ask if he had already received the book. And I heard him speak on the telephone. At that time I didn't speak a word of French. And I heard him mention my name. So I thought it's about the book, the tractate of the Talmud. When he hung up, I said to him, Mr. Wolf, did you get the tractate? He said, what? He forgot the whole thing. Would you mention my name? Oh, he said, you are a Rebizel. I said, yes. I just spoke to your sister. I said, no, no, wait, wait a second. It's impossible. So he realized that something was happening. He tried to call back, but the, pe the person who called, called from the post office because she had no telephone. I said, it's impossible. First, I, I don't think that they are alive. If yes, what is she? I didn't even know who it was, the oldest or the second oldest. What is she doing in France? Even if she's in France, how does she know that I'm here? So I spent 24 hours, you can imagine how, and he said, you have a message, she's waiting for you tomorrow at the Paris railway station. I was in an in a, in a, in a orphanage near Normandy. And next day I came, it was my older sister. She was liberated also, and uh, she met a, a, a man, and she, was going, she followed him to get married. The other sister went back to Siget to find out maybe I, I survived. I said, how did you find me? And then she said, I saw your picture in a newspaper. And then I remembered. The journalists came to that orphanage. It's a good story, but I had never seen a journalist in my life. I have never seen a journal in my life. And I remember I was playing chess with, with a friend who also came from the transport from Buchenwald. And they took pictures. And the picture was in the paper. And one day she opened the paper, she saw my picture. Since then, I have a very soft spot for journalism. <laughs> in France, strange as it may sound, I really became very religious, as before. I, you may wonder why I do. I really became extremely religious. Is it my way of of, of saying to, to God, look, 
they did not succeed in killing my faith in you. Or is it that we know, now I know, in psychiatry, what we call latency, latency. Uh, for the meaning of an event to become part of my consciousness, of my awareness, it takes time. Which means I needed time to be aware of what really happened and its implications. It's possible. And, but I really became extremely religious. I, then I met a man named Shoshani, who was a crazy, totally crazy genius. And I became his disciple. I didn't know then that he had another disciple then, who was a very great philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. Later on, we compared notes. We were his disciples at the same time, but he liked to keep them apart. He almost drove me crazy. Worst, he tried actually to destroy, destroy me, not physically, but intellectually. And I think that if I had stayed with him, if he had stayed with me, I would have probably lost faith and lost my, my sanity too. But nevertheless, my passion for study, which accompanied my whole life to this day, is not what saved me, but saved my sanity. When people ask me, how did you survive? I don't have the answer. But when they ask me, how did you remain sane? I have the answer. It is thanks to my passion for study. I kept on studying and therefore somehow I had an anchor at the basis. I felt that I am not alone. When you study, you are not alone. Voices of writers, of scholars, of teachers, of guides, of mentors, of prophets, Voices of centuries and centuries ago reverberate in yours, and you have the right to dialogue with them, and you are not alone. At one point, as I began studying, I had a choice between joining, entering the conservatory or the Sorbonne. Why the conservatory? When I was still young, I played violin at home. At that time, every Jewish mother wanted her son to be a violinist. <laughs> to become a Yasha Haifez. You know. The problem was we didn't have violin teachers. My, fa my father found a, an officer of the gendarmerie who was a violinist. And the officer accepted to be my tutor. So I would come first twice and then three times a week. Under one arm, the violin, under the other arm, a bottle of, a bottle of Tsuika, it's a kind of Slivovitz. He drank and I played. <laughs> and when the bottle was empty, it was the end of the, of, of the lesson. <laughs> so my father bought bigger, bigger bottles. <laughs> After the war in, in, the, in, in the orphanage, I became a choir conductor. I loved it because there were very beautiful girls in the choir. My problem was I was so timid, I never told them. If, if, if I think now really what I missed then. <laughs> so I said, maybe I should become a, a, a conductor of orchestras and then I'll be less timid. 
but then I pr prefer to join the Sorbonne, to enter the Sorbonne. And I decided to, to come to philosophy because of the questions. And I left it because of the answers. When we deal with essential questions, there are no answers. There should be no answers. Those questions that my generation has remain open. And then I became involved in many activities. I was a journalist first. I was sent to Israel as a war correspondent for French paper. But since I knew Hebrew, my father forced me to study modern Hebrew. When I came back, I, I, I got a, a paper to let me be its correspondent in Paris. I realized that to be a foreign correspondent is very good. You have no boss. That paper then was the poorest in the country. Now it's the richest. It became rich when I left it. And uh, at one point, I decided to write my testimony. I had made a vow in 45 to wait 10 years. Why? I wanted to be sure that the words will be the proper words. I wanted to be sure that the language will be the real language, the true language. Leibniz said that the language is a monument of people. I wanted my language to be the monument to our people, especially to those who died. And after 10 years, I did so. And I describe in one of my books how I met François Mauriac, a great writer who was the one who actually was at the crossroad with me all the time. He's the one who brought the book. I wrote it in Yiddish first. It was published in Argentina. But in French, it was later on. And uh, a friend of mine is actually instrumental in helping me. He was now professor of University of California in Los Angeles, Moshe Lazar. And I brought it to Moriac, and he's the one who brought it to the publisher. In the beginning, no publisher wanted it, neither in France nor in America. We couldn't find the publisher. Finally, uh, the agent of the French publisher found a small publisher, and he, we got $100 for it. $50 went back to the French publisher. <laughs> Don't ask, it's what, anyway. People who read it were very few. 3,000 copies were printed. It took five years to sell, because at that time nobody wanted to hear that story. Nobody. The rabbis spoke about it, and the congregants complained, saying, what do you mean? You are, you are, you are troubling our children. It changed. The mood changed. Everything changed. At one point, I became involved <coughs> in the fight for Soviet Jewry, and the dissidents as well, in 65. I went, came back with a book called The Jews of Silence. When I shall come before the celestial court, and God will ask, what did you do with your life? I will say, I was in Moscow and in Kiev and other places, and I heard the first words of a people that was silenced by the regime and nevertheless chose to sing 
its allegiance to its people and to freedom. I saw them dancing in the street on Simchat Torah, which is a Jewish holiday, the celebration of the law. I became involved in that fight. I went from town to town, from meeting to meeting. I wrote articles and books and on television, I wrote a play. I tried to do everything possible. If anyone had told me then, in 1965, that I would see the communism come to its end, I wouldn't have believed it. If anyone had told me that I would see Russian Jews leave Russia, I'd never have believed it. And so certain things happened in the second part of the 20th century that seemed to be good. I saw it from near because I became involved in human rights which I believe is to be the secular religion of today. Simply to see in the other a spark of divinity. As a philosopher, I'm sure those who study philosophy, you have heard probably the, the famous Socratic uh, injunction, know, th know thyself. In our tradition, we don't say that. We say, know the other. Know the person living next to you. That's what you should do. I want to know you more than, you, than I want to know myself. I can know you only if you want me to know you, but then I can know myself only through you. And I tried to go. I go all over the world. At the same time, I was a teacher. I gave up journalism and became a teacher, a professor. And I am terribly attached to my students. I don't think I have missed two classes. It happened I came back from Paris only to teach my class and go back to Paris. But the most important things, of course, for a teacher is to teach, for a writer to write, and for all of us to celebrate memory. There are today moments of anxiety. In 1945, strangely enough, many of us were optimistic in a paradoxical way. Because we were convinced that this one thing we know now, there will be no more wars. Why? Because we have seen the war, the grotesque ugliness and brutality of war. Wars, what do they mean? Corpses and more corpses and more hatred finished. We saw there will be no more hunger, simply because we know what hunger, we, we remember what hunger was. So we shall see to it that no one will ever be hungry. The prisons will close their gates because people will be better. No more hatred. I would have sworn to you in the presence of the, of the Sefer Torah, of the Holy Script, the sacred scrolls, there will be no more hatred, no more racism, no more anti-Semitism. And, of course, we were wrong. Kosovo and Malbenia and Sarajevo and then... To this day, there are dozens of wars still being waged. I went to all these places. I went to Argentina to see the, the mad mothers. Why were they mad? Because at that time, the dictatorial regime 
was brutal. And 30,000 youngsters, mainly students, were arrested, tortured, and dropped from helicopters into the ocean. 30,000. And the mothers would come every, I think once a week, to, to be together and to protest. We call them actually the whole period, the disaparecido, the disappeared ones. And Bosnia, I went to Bosnia simply to see, to witness. My role, I felt, was to bear witness. Went to Bosnia. Then I was sent by the president as his envoy to. Macedonia and Albania to see the refugees, and I would go from one camp to another, from one tent to another. Like there, I came to save the Muslims, and I would speak to them, and I would listen to them, and remarkably, not one of the people managed to finish the story. They would always begin telling stories about rape about murder, parents murdered in the presence of their children and children in the presence of their parents. And they would start telling the story and then broke into tears, they couldn't finish it. And I felt maybe that is our task, to finish their story. Good things happened nevertheless in that, in that last part of the century. Apartheid was vanquished. I went to South Africa to fight apartheid. And there too, if anyone had told me that I would see the end of apartheid in my lifetime, I wouldn't have believed it. I remember I came to the Sovetos and I felt there, but I felt here when I was in America in the South in the 50s. I felt shame. I was never ashamed as a Jew. There I was ashamed as a, as a white man to see racism becoming the law. The law was racist in the South and in South Africa. I felt shame. But you see, racism here is outlawed. True, it took the assassination of a president, of Martin Luther King, of Robert Kennedy, all that. But still, it's not fashionable anymore here to be a racist. We have racists, but no more racism. In there, South Africa, Mandela and Declare. Communism abdicated. So why is it so sad today? Why do I have such a heavy heart today? Is it the Middle East? Yes. The Middle East also. We Jews have survived so many catastrophes, so many tragedies, so many challenges. After all, we are the only people of antiquity that have survived antiquity. But they are again challenging us. And we don't know what to do. Anti-Semitism in Europe, my God, has Europe forgotten? what anti-Semitism leads to? To have a Le Pen as 
the number two leader in France who is going to challenge Jacques Chirac. He has gotten 17% in, in the general vote. To have a synagogue burned down in Marseille. To have demonstrators shouting death to the Jews in so many countries there. What is happening to Europe? Anti-Semitism here doesn't exist, but anti-Semites do exist, even on the campuses, in the universities, in many universities. What is it about human nature, about, about our society, about my generation, which is the generation that preceded yours? What's happening? What is the meaning of all that? All this can be possible today. And Israel, suicide killers, I tell you, I see this. I feel, believe me, I feel for the Palestinians, the young people and the mothers, I feel, they, they are angry. I understand their anger, especially the young people. And I think they are angry mainly at their own, at their own elders, the elders that have missed so many opportunities to become a state, a sovereign state. The latest one with Arafat uh, simply ignoring or rejecting Ehud Barak's extraordinary concessions. Had he accepted them, there would have been a Palestinian state already a year ago, recognized and held by the entire world, including America and Israel. So I understand they are angry, but from there to choose suicide, killings and mothers to glorify their death and preachers to celebrate their death. The ambassador of Saudi Arabia in London wrote a poem celebrating a suicide killing. What will happen? I know that Dr. Hecht is going to ask me questions that he had collected from you. I would not want to end this reminiscence with despair. Whenever I wrote a novel, and I always write novels, and they, they are always filled with sadness also and despair. But I never publish the novel if I don't have there a way out, an appeal of and to hope and for hope. I am not, I don't think that I survived. I don't think I've been given years to give you despair. I would not publish it. One novel about Alzheimer. I kept in my drawer a long, long time because I felt it's impossible. This disease is so horrible. It's a malediction. There's no way out. And I'm not going to publish it until I did find a way out. Then I published it. Therefore, there must be hope as well. Maybe in the questions I, I elaborate, all I can tell you now. If Israel could make peace with Germany, surely Israel will make peace with the Palestinians. And so, hope is possible simply because hope is necessary. 
And now, the questions. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, um, we have a little bit of a difficulty this evening because um, of the Arlington Theater and trying to field questions. But as many of you know, I was hanging around in the lobby, stopping people, some who I knew, some who I didn't know. And I asked each of these people, as you know, I started around 6 o'clock or a little earlier. And the question I asked each of them was, if you could ask Elie Wiesel any question, irrespective of what he would say to us this evening about his life, what would you, what would you ask? And there were a, num num a, a number of questions that were about the Middle East. Um, and perhaps we might begin uh, with the question of a ninth grader uh, here in Santa Barbara who wanted to know how you can find hope in this horrible situation that Israel and the Palestinians find themselves in. May I start with that question? Sure, I like your idea to go and say to people, give me your question. <laughs> I say, give me your answer, you say, give me your question. <laughs> Usually I say, give me your story. I love stories, you know, I, I collect stories. What, what is the hope? Hope is, first of all, on an individual basis. To this day, to this day, in the hospitals in Israel, the doctors treat not only the Jewish victims who are wounded by the terrorists, but even the terrorists who are wounded. And the doctors say, whoever comes first, who is more urgent, we treat them. That is something. Second, I have seen Israel in 67, during the 67 war I was there. At that time, I remember I asked Rabin, that's how I met him, and we became very good friends, why aren't there victory parades? After all, it's the, the glorious army. It is the, most vic the, the greatest victory Israel ever had since David, David uh, killed Goliath. And there is no victory parade. He said, because the soldiers are sad. Sad not only because their comrades fell, sad for having killed so many on the other side. That's how I became his friend. That's for these words. Those soldiers today, I saw that I was in Israel 10 days ago, and I see it on television, and I, see, I spoke to people. They are sad. They don't want to do what they are doing. Which means they remained, they remained human beings, forced into a situation which they didn't want. Now, what is the hope? What I would like to see achieved, for instance, the moment the suicide killing stop, there will be negotiations, maybe sure of that. There will be a Palestinian state soon after, maybe sure of that too. Then I would like to forget the top of the pyramid and go to the base of the pyramid. I would like then to establish relations. Let's say, children from the Palestinian kindergartens 
should go every month and visit the children of the Israeli kindergartens, both ways, once a month. And that should apply to elementary school students and high school students and college students and teachers and painters and writers and journalists and doctors. Slowly broaden that scope of relations, of human relations. Because after all, one thing is clear. When two human beings meet, something happens. And if there is no hatred, everything is possible. So therefore, that is absolutely, I think, a good remedy that would bring people together. For this, one more thing has to happen. Arafat should withdraw the textbooks from the schools printed by the Palestinian Authority. They are filled with too much hatred, not only for Israelis, but for Jews. I study them. It's too much. One of my... Um dear friends at the university, Rabbi Stephen Cohen, I think would want to push you a little bit on the issue of hope. And his question, when I asked him, what would you, Rabbi Cohen, ask Elie Wiesel was, what are the things that make you feel hopeful in the Jewish future? It is the Jewish past. We are here. <laughs> Come on. There is a ninth grader by the name of Satchel, Satchel Herman, who is 13 years old, and he goes to Anacapa Middle School. And he also would push you on the issue of hope. And he would say, Elie Wiesel, how can I, as a 13-year-old who didn't suffer as you have suffered, have faith after 9-11 or watching the television each night? Um, with the events coming out of Israel and, and Palestine? Faith in God or faith in, in, in human beings? Or what, what well, kind of faith? Um, well, Satchel was very astute because he did connect it to the issue of God. But I'm going to ask you that separately. Later, okay. <laughs> but you'll push me around later, right? Okay. <laughs> What is the alternative to hope? There is no alternative to hope. The alternative would be resignation, despair, and I believe despair is never an answer. Despair is a question. Now, whatever happened in our, in our past, or in the present as well, if you think in abstract terms, then you can despair. But the moment you see one child, one mother, you have no right to despair. 9-11, yes, of course. What, what did we learn then? The power of evil. 19 men managed to do what military units couldn't do to America. They didn't need a bomb, not even a grenade, not even a revolver, not even a knife. But they did. Not only did they kill and maim and provoke suffering of thousands and thousands of families, but worse, they have done so without a word. When I studied that event, I couldn't believe it because I, st I did study 
the history of terrorism. For the first time, these terrorists committed murder and suicide without leaving a message. They didn't say why. They didn't say what they wanted. A word of protest, or of anger, a demand, ransom, what? Nothing. As if to say that we don't deserve their language. The only language we deserve is death. Death became the language. It's true, when you think of them, you despair. But the response was so extraordinary. I was there. The response in New York, in America, in the whole world, it was extraordinary. People became gentle, tender, affectionate, friendly. I think in those days the thieves stopped stealing. I think the policemen stopped giving tickets. Something happened there. And the policemen, and the firemen, and the medical corps, and the, in general, something happened. Now, we can, when you see tragedy, you have a choice. You can join those who caused the tragedy, or the opposite. You can join the victims, although they are dead, but you join their families, you join what they represent, their memories. And the goodness of the people of New York and of, of the country is, I think, a reason for us to say hope is there, and it's a noble hope. In the Santa Barbara... In the Santa Barbara Middle School, there is a group of students who are reading night. And they've asked me to ask you a question which they would like to know your response to. You alluded to it in your presentation to us this evening, that if um, you would have known what Auschwitz meant, as it was known in London and Washington and Sweden, Jews might have saved themselves. Their question to you, these eighth graders studying history, is what could the Allies have done? Oh, it's very simple. Suppose, look, usually when people ask me this question, they say, wait a second, don't you tell in night the story of the beetle who came back from Poland and uh, he described the massacre? True. We didn't believe him. Even I, who was his friend, I thought he was a little bit deranged. But I like stories, so I listen to him. But it's one thing to listen stories from a beetle, and another, just imagine if Roosevelt had gone on, on the radio and said, Hungarian Jews, it's your turn now. Don't go. Try to save yourselves. Run. Don't go. I tell you, we would not have gone. But then, when I came to America and I began studying, I went through the papers and everything, I, I cannot tell you what I felt about Roosevelt. I say Roosevelt with great pain, because he was, he was a great figure for us. I did not know the name of David Ben-Gurion at home. I could know Rabbi Akiba, but not, not Ben-Gurion. But I did know the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We used to say prayers for him. He was the father of the Jews. But I then learned 
two things. One is the St. Louis. Come on. A ship of German Jews, men, women, and many children, left Germany, went to Cuba, they had visas, but the visas for uh, something cancelled. And they came back, they were on the shore, in the shores of America. And Roosevelt sent them back to Germany six months or so after Kristallnacht. But everybody knew already what was German, happening in Germany, the pogroms, the killings, the burning of synagogues and, and marketplaces to Germany. To this day, I don't understand it. Nor do I, do I understand why he didn't order the, the bombing of the railways going to Auschwitz. His defenders say he didn't want to bomb the camps because it would have killed inmates. Believe me, when we heard the planes going over Auschwitz or Buchenwald, we hoped that they would bomb the camps with us in them. We, we wanted that. But forget that. The railways going to Auschwitz didn't. So, and nevertheless, he was a great man for, for America, and uh, I'm not saying it with, surely not with hatred, I, certainly not. I, I, dis, I have respect and, and affection for what, what he did for America. But within all that, in my heart, I have problems, I, I have pain, pain when I think of him, for what he has not done, what he could have done and didn't for the Jewish people there in Europe. Um, now I come to the question that you will that you spoke directly to in your presentation, that after your liberation, when you were in the orphanage in France, in Normandy, you became religious again, and you told us, um, you told us that this was a way, um, your way of saying to God that they did not kill my faith in you. A number of the people who I asked, what questions would you ask Elie Wiesel? And, came, and this came up in my class when I tried to have my class help me make questions because I didn't think I would be able to find questions for you easily um, this evening. I thought people would say, well, I would like to hear what he has to say first, but of course, everyone has a question for you. And the question is, how is it really possible to regain faith after such enormously painful, uh, theologically problematic events of the Holocaust, or as one student yesterday put it in my class, how does the Holocaust change our thinking about the fundamental theological category of covenant in the Jewish tradition? Or how does the Holocaust change the notion of covenant as it exists in the religions of the world? How has our relationship to God been radically altered, perhaps, by this monstrous event of the Holocaust? There is a beautiful story that I found in one of the three books on Jewish martyrology in Shevet Yehuda of the Middle Ages. Somewhere there were persecutions, and the fam Jewish family took a ship and left Europe from Spain and came to the desert, probably in Algeria or Morocco. And they were alone, hungry, thirsty. And then the mother died. 
So he and his three sons dug a grave and said Kaddish. Shortly afterwards, a son died. He and his two sons dug a grave and said Kaddish. The second son died, dug a grave, Kaddish. And then the fourth died, and he was alone. He said, Master of the universe, I know what you want. You want me to stop saying Kaddish, I will not. Hear me, I will not. It's a powerful story. Tested by God, the man said, no. In spite, I will say Kaddish. With me it was different. <clears throat> I never lost faith in God. But I say in night is inside faith. I was angry. I'm still angry. But I am angry not only at God. Look, let's be honest. Auschwitz did not come down from heaven ready-made. It was conceived by human beings. It was staffed by human beings implemented by human beings, built by human beings. It's human beings who did that to each other, and those who did that did it mainly to the Jews, but to some other people beyond the Jews as well. So therefore I should be angry at them, and I am. I am angry at humanity. You mentioned yourself, but I couldn't believe that after the war when I, did, when I discovered that that the leaders of the Sonderkommando, Sondergruppen, the Einsatzgruppen, the murder squads, who killed a million and a half people with machine guns, Babiyar, Minsk, they had college degrees, and many of them had doctorates in literature, in philosophy, and medicine. I thought that education is a shield against certain things. An educated person cannot do certain things and remain educated and civilized. And when I saw that what they did, I said, hey, something is wrong. So I said, where is humanity? As for God, when I end, when I come to the end of my questions with regard to the human beings, then I turn to God and I say, where were you? Because the tragedy of the believer is deeper than the tragedy of the non-believer. I should answer? I don't have an answer. I'm telling you, even if the greatest of the great scholars would come today to me, scholars from the past, not only of today, and said, here is the answer, I would say, go away, I don't want it. There should be no answer to that. I believe that that injustice, the capital, capital I, should remain an open question, an open wound that should torment me and all of us and our children's children to the end of times, but not as a morbid endeavor. We should go on living, being capable of joy, of happiness, of friendship, of solidarity, of compassion, of creativity. Otherwise, we would be a morbid people. We are not a morbid people. The Talmud forbids us to mourn too long. There are, there are laws about it, the laws of mourning. In our 
first seven days and then 30 days and then a year. We must limit the mourning, limit the suffering. But when we remember, we should remember honestly and say, oh, this we don't understand. I don't understand. I don't want to accept an answer for that. There could be, there should be no answer to a tragedy that consumes six million people, a million and a half children. No, I don't accept that. So therefore, and nevertheless, I do continue to have faith. I do have faith. I'm, I'm not speaking to you about my religion, my, 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 my religious practices. I'm not here to, to sell anything. But I'm simply saying, to say, therefore, I don't have faith, it's too easy. I, I, I don't like easy answers. It's because I have faith that I have a problem. And this problem will live with me until the end. And I tell you, if not if, when I will come before the Celestial Tribunal, I will have something to say there. May I ask one last question? And I think it's a very important question. And I think it's at the heart of these uh, Arthur N. Roop Distinguished um, Dialogue series. For you, um, your life is in a sense within you. But for so many, hundreds of thousands of people who your writing, your teaching has affected, you have, you have become a model for us um, of someone who will not allow us to forget, someone who knows the power of memory, as you have suggested this evening. But if there's a person out there who wants to say to you, what is the most important characteristic that moved you or power that moved you from that vow not to speak about the Shoah for a decade to where you are now, a public intellectual, uh, someone who exerts enormous power on the world around you, whose opinion matters? What quality, what characteristic is most important? Richard, you exaggerate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do I exaggerate? Believe me. Believe me. I don't have that much power. Uh, people, yes, people, if I want to see somebody, it's not me. It's, it's not nice not to receive a Nobel laureate. That's why they receive me otherwise. <laughs> but my books, I'm, no, I, I know what I'm doing. As a teacher, I know very well. That's why I have my passion in learning and teaching. I, I know. That's why I love my students. But my joy, when I see in the corner there a young student, and I see the flicker in that student's eye, that's my joy. As for the most important, the most important task that I see to my, for myself and for those who do what I am doing, is to sensitize the student or the reader or the listener. What is memory to me? I invoke it to sensitize, not to make people cry, but to make people smile. Why are we teaching? Why are we teaching Shakespeare or, 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 or Rabbi Akiba? Why are we teaching Plato? Why? To sensitize. If you study well, then from now on, whenever you will 
hear about Romeo and Juliet, you will know that it is not a story of love, but a story of hate. Two families hate each other and therefore two young people die. If you study philosophy, then you know very well that Socrates was a very great man. He could have chosen exile. He was offered a choice, exile or death. He chose death because he understood the dangers of exile. You study Plato. You, Plato was one of the great. We wouldn't be here without Plato. However, Plato accepted slavery. So, that is what we are doing with words, to sensitize. Without sensitivity, what would the person be? Indifferent. So, really, what I really want to, to achieve is in telling my stories, writing my books, is to bring them closer, let's say, to Job. I love Job. I love Job because of his language. The language of Job. When, when there, are, there, come, that there is a moment, there are moments when I, I don't have the words. I open Job, I use his words. And yet, Job was not Jewish. Very few people realize that in our tradition, in our text, in the Talmudic commentaries, every effort is being made to tell us Job was not Jewish. He was a Gentile, he was a prophet to the Gentiles, a Messiah for the Gentiles, not Jewish at all. And yet, his pain, his tragedy concerned us. So much so that in our liturgy of the High Holidays, we use so much of his words. He wasn't Jewish. Pain. But somebody suffers. I must be sensitive to his or her pain, but also to his or her joy. But I have learned, ultimately, what I have learned from all that, I'll tell you what, this is the lessons I really. I have learned that words can heal or destroy. They can make you dream or angry. They can give you happiness or sadness. They can bring you closer to truth or move you away from it. In Paris there is a Palais there is a which is now the, the center of human rights. There are graven words there written by a poet, Paul Valéry. It goes more or less like this. Passant, passerby. It depends on you whether I should talk or be silent. Whether I should be a tomb or a treasure. And he goes on and then he ends. Ami, friend, do not enter without desire. I, I would say the same thing. Whatever book you open, whatever words you acquire, do not enter them without a desire to help the person next to you, any person, the other person. And it's your choice, mine, that that person should be an enemy or an ally, a friend or foe, a person who can do you harm, or a person who can give you the greatest and noblest that the person can receive the worthiness of your life. To know that what you have done with your years 
is worthy in the eyes of God and your friends. But then, that's more than a prayer. It's a blessing. Thank you.